So who here plays chess or has played chess? Scott. So Scott, if we're playing chess and, and we're playing back and forth and we get to a spot where you say to me, check, what does that mean? You got my king in a move where you can kill him. So now if, unless I can move my king out of your attack or place another player between me, your attacker, and my king, or I can take your attacker, what's your next move? Kill my king, and that's called what? Checkmate. So when you take my king, do I have any other moves? I'm done. In this game of chess, when it's checkmate, you have no further move. Your opponent has won by taking your king, and you have lost your kingdom. Now, in a game, depending on who you're playing, that could be devastating. But in life, it's horrible. So in about the seventh or eighth year of our marriage, Pam and I were having some struggles and difficulties. And one day she said, I've been thinking about taking the children and leaving you and going to be with my parents. Check. There was a time that our youngest son at six months of age had a fever that would not break and he'd been in the hospital for three days and they weren't sure whether or not they could get it down in time before it would do damage to him. Check. There are those moments. There are those times when it seems that you're running out of moves. I was laid off from work for six months and had two foreclosure notices in my hand. Check. We've been looking at the words from a first century bishop in Jerusalem named James, who was the brother of Jesus. He's writing to some followers of Jesus who have been dispersed to the eastern side of the Mediterranean because of harsh persecution. And even though, in spite of their effort to flee their pain, they find that their pain awaits them wherever they arrive. Check. So James endeavors to give them some helpful directions, some wise moves to take to release them from check, to help them through the process. And one of those things he says they need immediately is mercy. Mercy is when someone is able to crawl inside our skin and look through our eyes and feel our pain and then say, I've got a way to help begin to fix this for you, and they actively pursue an answer for you. It's active compassion. And some of you that sit here today need mercy. It's always interesting to me as I, as I walk around here and I talk to folks before you gather in this place, what you're dealing with. Because we all come in here and we think that, that there's that person and I bet they've had a good week and that person, I, I know they've had a good week, but I didn't know that one of our, our community of, of faith members here got affected by the tornadoes and, and the flood and they've had to move out of their place and mold is growing there and they've lost some furniture and they're, they're displaced at the moment and they're, trying to, they're struggling, they need some mercy. One of our young ladies reported to me today that it's done. 
that her divorce is final and it, it still is, I mean, it's, it's hurting deeply. She, she needs mercy. So you're sitting here today saying, I really could use some mercy. James' description of how mercy actually flows within the community of faith may be puzzling at first because it's the reverse of what you think. Mercy given becomes mercy accessible. So let me demonstrate it for you this way, and you're going to have to work with me this morning. Will you work with me this morning, okay? You've had a great worship service. You've been moving. You're active, so, so don't sit there. And, and, and if you're on your phone, that's great. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to text some people during this time some thoughts that God gives you as I preach and even post it on Facebook. So they'll know where you are and say, hey, Reisner just said this. I'm sure God gave it to him because he couldn't come up on his own. So, so just, just put that stuff in there. But, but when we get to the spot, I want you to be actively involved because it's going to touch all of you. So, Scott, I've already picked on you because you beat me in chess. So, so I come to you and, and I begin to notice because I've had to have mercy before because, because I had to have God's mercy and, and so he actually did heal my son. So I understand mercy. And he healed my marriage. I understand mercy. I don't know how we did it, but somehow we came out of six months without income and, and didn't go into foreclosure because God was able to do that. And so I understand his mercy. So I'm aware of that. And I look at you and I think, Scott's dealing with something here. He, there may be some brokenness there. There may be, and, and I notice that, that, that maybe he needs some mercy. And I know I'm a mercy carrier. And so today that's going to be symbolized by I've got my hand raised. I'm a mercy carrier. And so I come to Scott, and, and what he needs when I bring him mercy is I need to help him shoulder the load. Because here's what I want to happen. By understanding what he's feeling, by asking his questions, listening to his heart, not preaching to him. He doesn't need preaching. He needs listening. And I listen to him, and I hear what's, what's happening in his life. And so I say, let me help shoulder that. And maybe I have resources to help with that. Maybe just listening will help that. Maybe some counseling as he asks questions will help, will help with that. But I'm listening to that, and I say, here, let me shoulder the load because here's what I want to happen. He is so weighted down that there is no way on his own that he can respond to Jesus' call. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden down, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm gentle and, and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your soul. He can't do that. But I'll say, Scott, let me tell you, and I'll, I'll, I'll put my shoulder into it, and I'll lift some of this for you. I'll carry some of this for you so that you... You can have a discovery of what God wants to do for you in the middle of all this mess you're in. And in doing so, Jesus speaks to him. In doing so, Jesus brings him peace. In doing so, Jesus reveals some truth. In doing so, there's some healing that takes place in his life. And I will shoulder the load until he's free. That's mercy. And then not only am I a mercy carrier, you're a mercy carrier. Get the hand up, dude. Okay. <laughs> so now if I'm over here and suddenly I become dejected and something I get roughed up by, by evil powers or people and I just need mercy, who do I know can give me mercy? Scott. But what if Scott is in the Bahamas on a vacation? Now what do I have? Don't get ahead of me. Okay. <laughs> People are ruining it. Stop it. 
So Scott and I are mercy carriers. Get your hand up there. And we look around, and we see two people around us. They need mercy, so we reach over, reach over, and we touch them. And we shoulder the load. You touch this one. I got this one. (laughs) Don't be stealing my mercy. So now they're touched by it. Now they're mercy carriers, right? Now we look around, and we see behind us some folks who need mercy, and we touch them. Now, look there. There are mercy carriers. Now, all of you mercy carriers, stand up. I want you to go to each section you can find separately. Don't go together. And find a section, and I want you to touch somebody who needs mercy. And when they touch you, then you reach over and touch somebody and get the hands up, and let's watch this thing spread. Ready? Go. Make it fast, because I don't have a lot of time. <laughs> now, so you can raise your, now, touch somebody else. Come on. Move it. Move it. Move it. Move it. Here we go. Here we go. Come on. Touch. 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 Okay. Everybody pretend like somebody touched you. That's going to take way too long. Now look, keep it up there. You have been touched by mercy, and now you are a mercy carrier. And it used to be that I had to go hunting for... You did go to the Bahamas. (laughs) It used to be I had to look for mercy. Now mercy's looking for me. That is how he created... Put your hands down now, thank you. That is how God designed the community of faith. But what if the person next to me needs mercy? What if I don't like them? What if I am GE Union and they are GE Management? What if my bumper sticker says Obama and yours says Tea Party? What if I am clean-shaven, baby boomer, retired with a manicured grass, and you are shaved head, pointed goatee, millennial with holes in your ears this big, and you smoke the grass? See, that's where it breaks down. Prejudice fractures mercy. Somebody sent me this sign. I think it's a riot. Just put it up on the screen. Can we do that? All you can eat buffet. Not mean all day buffet. You know come stay for an hour. You eat, you go home. the community of faith cannot put out a sign that says mercy is limited. And that's why James then in his letter continues, and we pick up where we left off last week, he says this, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. And he brings out the big gun here because he uses the big name. When Satan looked at Jesus and said, I'm going to kill you, check, Jesus said, bring it on. He took on death, he rose from the grave, and he turned to Satan and said, I'm Lord over you, checkmate. 
There's no power greater than me. In fact, the gospel, when you read about preach the gospel, it is this, Jesus is Lord. Lord Christ. The word is Messiah, the anointed one, the one that God sent to take a broken world and put it back together again. Only he could do that. Lord, Messiah, Jesus, the only one who is willing to bring us God's mercy without regard to ethnicity, to wealth, or religious brownie points. It says here, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, the one that if you get close enough to him, leaves you in such awe, the only thing you can do is praise because you have no other words left. And if there is one person who could show favoritism, it would be this one. But he does not. He does not show favor. In fact, the word favoritism here actually means to receive by face. It is to judge solely on external face values. Your car, your clothes, your color. And the wording here means that these folks are already showing favoritism within the community of faith. So James talks about that, and he illustrates it this way. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man, let me start again, thinks, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not, not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So he says, there's a guy who shows up at your meeting, he's got fine clothes. The wording that he uses there is the clothing that is worn by important dignitaries and wealthy people. In fact, it's the word the Romans used for, the word, for a toga that was worn by political candidates. And he comes in not just wearing a ring, because everybody could wear a ring, but this was a gold ring, and not everybody had a gold ring. You had to be wealthy to have a gold ring. And the more rings you had on your fingers, the more wealthy you were and the more impressive you were. In fact, in those days, there were people who actually would rent out gold rings to people so that they would feel important and look important when they went to important events. It was the red carpet. So, in your gathering, if George Clooney showed up, and at the same time, the guy who stands at the bottom of the exit at Peach and I-90 holding the sign that says, out of work, need food, and he shows up in his shabby clothes to beg, where do you seat them? Do the ushers, do they say, oh, George Clooney, oh, you need, you need the important seat, come sit by the pastor's wife, because... Pam would like to sit by George Clooney. <laughs> and the beggar shows up and we say, well, and, and the wording here can go two ways. It can either mean sit here on the floor or stand in the back where we can keep an eye on you because we don't want to be embarrassed. Here's the fracture. We have discriminated. We have made distinctions based on appearance. We have become the mercy Nazis. No mercy for you. We have exalted one and we have mistreated the other. And why? Because of wrong motives. We read it here. We have become judges with evil thoughts. 
unjust judging is based upon what we think is best for us. And so we base it on our selfish gain, our class distinctions, our pride, or our contempt. So when South Africa had the World Cup a couple years ago, they wanted to welcome the whole world. And they did a great job with new stadiums and improved airports. And, and their security increased. Everybody's welcome except that in Durban, South Africa, is the fastest growing street population of street kids in the world. Where seven and eight-year-olds, girls prostitute themselves and all of them sniff glue to get rid of the pain of not having any parents who have died because of AIDS or trying to get over the pain of being stabbed the night before. And do you know what their scheme was? What, what brilliance they came up with in welcoming the whole world? The plan was you go through the city and you scoop, scoop up all those street kids and you take them outside of Durban and you put them in the bush and tell them not to come back for a couple of weeks. Everybody's welcome except for those because who cares? Jesus cares. Mercy is on Jesus' welcome side. See, we didn't get mercy because God was out making some kind of new galaxy and out of the peripheral vision, he saw a little bit of a mess up on earth and said, I've got to send a couple angels and take care of them. No, no, he said they need mercy. So he put on our skin so that he could feel what we feel and he walked with us and he felt what we felt and he understood our pain. If you're going to have mercy on someone, it demands time and intent. We cannot give mercy in a self-focused, frenetic life. We have to be mercy conscious. Who is a stranger needing welcome and who is a person who feels empty needing value? Jesus knows because he hunts them down. He goes looking for them he gives them intent and time, and so should we. And that's why James says these words. Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen, God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? So 21 years ago, some friends and I decided that we wanted a mentor, and we said, who do we want as a mentor? We want someone who we look at their life and say, we want to be just like that. So he came up with this crazy scheme. There was this guy that lived in California, and he was the president of, of a college, and he was in-demand speaker, and he was internationally and nationally known, and, and we loved his life and what we knew about his life, and we said, let's go ask him, five insignificant guys living in Oregon. And so we said to Dennis, Dennis, you've talked to him before. You go talk to him and try to talk him into this thing. At least just come meet with us for three days up in central Oregon. So Dennis approached Dick and Ruth Foth. Said, will you come be with us? Because we just need to figure out life. And, 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 and we're just in, inconsequential guys who are just trying to figure out how to walk with Jesus. And so would you just come? And to our surprise, Dick showed up. When we got done, we, we, we spent three days giving our histories and our passions and what drives us and, and our faults and, and why we wanted him to hang out with us. And, and to our surprise, he said, I'll give you five years. Let's meet once a year, and during that time, we'll take three or four days, and we'll hang out together, talk about, get caught up, walk through things, and then we'll be in touch all year round, and then you guys get together at least one more time during the year by yourselves and talk about how it's going. 
That was 21 years ago. We still got Dick hanging around with us and Ruth. And here's what we've noticed. Mercy is on their welcome side. We've watched Dick mentor one of the joint, joint chiefs of staff, one of the joint chiefs in the Pentagon, talking about his family and how he's doing. And that evening, we watched him also spend time with an 18-year-old living way away from home trying to figure out life. He doesn't care a position or power. He's just there to pour into whoever's in front of him. He's a friend to a former cabinet member of President Bush and a friend to a blue-collar worker that's part of his small group in his church. He and Ruth walk around saying, we're mercy carriers. God put somebody in front of us, and we'll, we'll do that. Mercy's on his welcome sign. And he's not impressed, and she's not impressed with power or position because they understand this, that prejudice ignores the universality of sin. James reminds us that, that, that catering to those who are powerful and wealthy ignores the fact that they also need God's grace and they need a Savior. So James says this, but you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? So in the past, Pam and I went to Nancy's house right after a Sunday morning service to have lunch. Nancy's husband's not a follower of Jesus, and Nancy has a, a young daughter, and they live under the poverty level, and the best they could do for Sunday lunch was Wonder Bread and bologna and Kool-Aid. We had a great time. Then there's Don who called me one day, and I used to run with Don at about 5.30 in the mornings, and, and we'd go running, and, and one day he called me. He said, hey, how about an afternoon run? I said, sure, I, I, my, my schedule's clear today. He said, okay, meet me at the airport. I said, do what? He said, yeah, meet me at the airport. Are we going to run the runway? What? He said, just meet me at the airport. We can get at the airport. We get in his plane. He flies an hour to a resort up in the mountains and says, we're going to run here today. I said, okay. Jesus loves them both. And it doesn't matter what's in their bank account. It does not affect the mercy that he gives. There is no bearing on receiving his mercy. And if we lean either way in prejudice in any direction, then we have forgotten our own sin. James says this, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you what? You sin and are convicted by the law as a lawbreaker. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. So if I lean a little bit this way, I say it's okay, it's just a little sin. No, no, because I've broken the royal law, which is love God and your neighbor as yourself. Who's your neighbor? That wording means the person who's in front of you that needs mercy. And there are times that as a mercy carrier, I want to say, I don't want to touch the one in front of me. Would you mind getting out of line? Because you say, would you get out of line? Because they have piercings, and that just, that just throws me off. 
They're not the right color. He's in a wheelchair. He's a dumb jock. She's been married five times. They aren't from my neighborhood. He's got a mental illness. She didn't graduate from high school. As mercy carriers, you got to take the one in front of you. If you don't, because of your bias, you break the law. But it's just one piece of the law. Sure, take a hammer to your front window and just tap it in the corner really hard, and you'll say, I only broke that part. He shattered the whole thing. The whole community is broken when we refuse to share mercy. Because mercy given is mercy accessible. So James says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's our move. What we plant is what we grow. How we act is how it comes back to us. You say, that's karma. I don't care what you call it. It's God's law. So let me show you how that works. So last week, Pam and I were with Dick and Ruth and our mentor group. There's 11 of us together in the mountains. We've been there with them from Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. And, and Wednesday morning, we're together and we share our hearts, we share our lives, we share our stories, we share our pain, we share our, our laughter. And, and so already... Dennis and Jeanette have been talking about their life. We've gone through that. And Dennis, Jeanette's just had a horrible year. Her father died, and two months later, her mother died. And so we've been walking through that, and we've been praying. Well, Wednesday morning, she gets a phone call that her sister has just had a reoccurrence of cancer. And she is struggling with faith. God, where are you in all of this? She loves Jesus with her whole heart, but she just can't figure out what he's doing, and she's not sure where her faith is anymore as far as what should she believe, what should she not believe, and she's struggling. And so, and so we begin to pour out mercy because this is our gathering of mercy. We're going to help shoulder the load for her. So we pray over her, and we hug her. And, and then Ruth. Ruth doesn't like to speak publicly. It's just not her deal. Dick speaks public, publicly in just the most amazing ways, but she's just... She, so she gets really nervous, but she, she looks at Jeanette and she says, I have a poem for you. And she begins to quote this poem, and it is as if God himself is speaking. It's a poem of mercy, of how we shoulder the load for her so that she can encounter God. And it's this wonderful, merciful quote, and her eyes are just penetrating. You should, it was just, I've never seen Ruth like this. And she said, my heart's beating so hard right now, but I'm going to get this out. And she does, and, and it just, it just penetrates. Ruth finishes. We're all in awe. And then suddenly her back arches and her eyes roll up in her head and she slumps. Color leaves her face and blue comes into her face. Dick immediately knows she's dying or dead. He begins to cry out, Ruthie, Ruthie, don't go, don't go, don't go, weeping. He would later say he's never had fear like that in his life. We call 911. We begin to do what we need to do. We're checking for pulse, and, and, and I'm feeling up here in the neck, the carotid. There is no pulse, and Dennis is down here on the arm, and there's no pulse, and, and somebody else is by the face, and there, there's no breath. 
She is dead. We lay her down to try to open up an airway. 911 says, okay, you're ready to do CPR. I say, never mind. And miraculously, within four minutes, there's a, a, a cop. He comes running, bolting into the room and immediately hits the ground and starts doing compressions. And within four or five minutes, there are eight, eight wonderful responders around her working like a team together and an off-duty ER doctor who heard it on his scanner and shows up. We immediately have gone into prayer saying, oh, God, have mercy, 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 please have mercy, please have mercy. Some have gathered around Dick, and he's sitting now to the side watching all of this take place. They're doing compressions and more compressions, and they put on a, a, a machine that does the compressions. And in my head, I'm already thinking, Saturday, we're going to have a funeral. They load her up and they take her out and they take her to the local hospital. On the way out, the ER doctor says to us, we got a pulse because they shocked her twice. And to find out it, it wasn't a clogged artery, it, it was AFib and the whole heart just stopped because of the electrical system. And, and so they said, we've got a pulse, but don't get your hopes up. They lifelight her to what we found out later had just been announced as the number one cardiac hospital in America. We arrive and they say, okay, actually her blood pressure is good. Her heart, there's nothing wrong with her heart. But now we're going to put her, we've already started to, to lower her temperature down to 92. And, and we're going to try to stop any damage to the brain where there's been a loss of oxygen. And, and so we're going to keep her under for 24 hours. Then we're going to start waking her up for 12 hours. And then after that for three days, we'll see what the damage is. We saw mercy. First of all, this group gathered around Dick and said, we're going to shoulder this with you. We're walking through with this and we're praying and we're calling people and, and we're around him there in the hospital and, and the staff, a, a church staff that he's been pouring into, they show up and they're giving mercy and, and it's functioning because their hands are raised. We're here. Whatever it takes, we're here. His small group shows up and if you're not in a small group, shame on you. Because it's in these moments like that, they show up and say, we're going to show their mercy for you. And so one lady sits down next to Dick. Now it's been about 24 hours, and the group's been here a lot longer. She says, Dick, have you eaten anything? And he says, well, yeah. And everybody else says, no. She says, you're eating this. And so she makes sure he gets fed. Another lady says, give me your phone. I'm answering your phone calls. Another lady says, I'm going to start the caring bridge so people won't have to keep contacting you. They can go online and see what's happening. And so they all doing that, and the guys are standing around saying, what do you need us to do? We're going to contact your kids. Now, the problem is that the kids had one son and the family had just gotten to Hawaii for a vacation. One lives in Eugene, Oregon, and the other two live in the Bay Area, two daughters. And they need to get there. They got 24 hours, and, and the doctor says, 24 hours, we'll start waking her up, and hopefully she will wake up. There's another lady, she's on her phone. said, what is she doing? Well, Dick and Ruth know these guys. They poured into them, and they just happened to have three Learjets. They have an international business, so they fly a jet down to Phoenix to pick up the kids coming from Hawaii, and one to Eugene to pick up the others, and the others are already got on their way. So if you're going to have people with have mercy, have them with Learjets, because that really works nice. Kids are there in time, and so now they start at 4 in the evening, and, and now they're warming her body back up, and at about 2 in the morning, one of our group 
Janine is standing there because she, she's a night owl. So he said, I'll, I'll keep watch. And so she's over praying and we're supporting. Mercy, oh Lord, mercy. And Ruth opens up her eyes. She's awake. Well, Dick has finally fallen asleep because he hasn't slept for like 48 hours. And finally, because he knows the family's there, he falls asleep. And, and Janine doesn't want to wake him up until they know what's going on with Ruth. She gets the doc. The doc comes in. And I guess there are 10 steps they take him through to see where they are. And, and she passes all 10. And so they wake up Dick and say, okay, this is good. This is good. And so they, they, they go through the process and and. And the good news is that, that she has no short-term memory loss except for what happened there in that place when, when she went out. And, and, and she's talking and she's communicating and she knows things and she's moving her extremities and all of that is in place. About 48 hours into this, because they said it would take three days to figure out, she's having depth perception problems and so she's got a cracker in her hands and she drops it in her lap and Ruth is just great. Ruth says, oh, I'm such a fumble fingers. And then she looks at her family and says, yeah, but I came back from the dead. That day we sat around outside in the patio of the hospital talking with Dick, and Dick said, let me hear from everybody's perspective what happened, and we began to talk about God's mercy and the mercy of the people. We're just crying, we're weeping. And this I know, that mercy was the order of the day because mercy has been the order of their life. Mercy living creates mercy community. So the poem that, that Ruth shared that day actually was a poem of mercy meant for her in her dying and becoming back to life and for Dick in his greatest fear and in us in our shock. And it's the essence of what should happen when we shoulder the load for each other in mercy within this community of faith. So if you're here today and you're one step away from checkmate, then hear, hear this poem that is God's mercy to you. Dear child, God does not say today, be strong. He knows your strength is spent. He knows how long the road has been, how weary you have grown. For he who walked the earthly roads alone, each bogging lowland and each rugged hill, can understand, and so he says, be still. And know that I am God. The hour is late, and you must rest a while, and you must wait until life's empty reservoirs fill up as slow rain fills an empty, upturned cup. Hold up your cup, dear child, for God to fill. He only asks today that you be still. Welcome to the community of faith. You have no pain, you have no past, you have no shame that will exclude, exclude you from his mercy. I say to you, come to God and wait. We will protect you. We will surround you. While you hold your cup, God will fill you and we will support you. And so I have a simple question for us in this room today. It's a question of action because mercy is action. Who here is willing to say, and I want you to respond in just a moment, is willing to say, 
that I understand God's mercy. I've been a recipient of God's mercy, and therefore I will be a mercy carrier, and whoever's in front of me, whatever it takes, I will come shoulder their load so they can have this happen to them where God can move in and and fill their empty cup and and heal them and, and encourage them. I will carry that load with them. I'm willing to do that for whoever it is because we are a community of mercy. If you are a carrier of mercy, and that is your intention, and you will give time and intention to do that, raise your hand. Now look around. Thank you. Now to those whose life has said check, welcome to this community of mercy. And I encourage you, grab one of those people whose hands have just been raised and say, I need your help. Because they will help. Because that is our mercy move. Will you stand? So I pray for you. I bless you now that the mercy that you have experienced from God will be that which flows out from you unrestricted. May you see what others do not see. May you feel even what you could not feel before. And may you have courage to walk beyond your bias and your prejudice and your own self-desires. May you become an instrument of mercy in this community of faith so that God can heal lives and transform people. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.